0: Welcome to Retire Smarter, Walter Storholt here with you alongside Kevin Krosky. And you know what? Now that we've done more than 90 episodes of this show over the past few years, it's gotten to the point where we know that we've picked up a lot of listeners at various parts of the journey. Maybe you're one of them. And many of you who weren't around since the beginning have perhaps never gone back to hear some of our earlier episodes. Well, if you sure wish you could go back and catch some of the best past episodes, but, you know, maybe you don't have the time to go consume every single one of them, well, you're in luck. We've done some of the hard part for you. Uh, we're going to give Kevin a few weeks off from taping fresh material to make it through the end of tax season here and then he'll be back of course but in the meantime we've assembled a special five-part series a retirement rules rewind if you will where we've selected episodes from our most popular series of the past now these are going to be select episodes that deal with retirement rules that you've probably heard before but you know we like to challenge those rules on this show and see if they truly should be called that so we're going to touch on some Over the next five episodes that relate to everybody's retirement planning. So there's something here for everyone. And even if you had listened to these episodes way back when, well, it's been a few years, so never hurts to have a refresher. So sit back and we'll rewind right into the meat of a previous episode as part of our Retirement Rules Rewind. Part four of our series is Rules Gone Awry, The 4% Rule. Well, we're in the midst of a series talking about retirement rules gone awry some of these things that have been long believed in the financial world in the financial landscape that really shouldn't necessarily be subscribed to that may have some holes in them or some problems and there's a big one kevin that we're tackling today if you saw the headline of the show you'll see that it's the four percent rule this thing's been around for a long time but i understand that we need to kind of poke it with spears and poke lots of holes in this theory
1: Yeah, so we should probably define it. I mean, it probably is ringing bells for a lot of people. It's probably one of the most widely known retirement rules that are out there. But simply stated, it's you know how much can you pull out from your investment account each year safely and make sure that you don't run out of money. So to put that in context, there's a guy by the name of Bill Bengen who was a practitioner in the industry and lived out in california and he did this study in the early 90s and he actually was a career changer so he came out of a family business that was sold and got into financial planning and one of the things that he found when he came over into the industry was there was a lot of, of information about investing money and accumulating money but there was very little about spending money and kind of you know decumulating it from a portfolio so What Bill did was took historical returns for the US all the way back to 1926, and he looked at a 30-year period. So somebody retires in 1926, starts taking money out of the account, and each year that they live throughout retirement, they take inflation increase. So in 1927, for example, let's say that inflation was 3% over the year prior, so they would go ahead and take out a 3% raise in 1927 so on and so forth. And basically what Bill found in doing that was that the absolute worst case, not the best case, not the average, but the worst case that somebody was able to do was about 4%, you know, taking, just put some dollars on it. Say you start a retirement at a million dollars, you can take 4% or $40,000 out in year one of retirement, increase that by the actual inflation rate each year over a 30 year retirement lifespan and still be okay.
0: So why did this thing, you know, pick up so much popularity as a rule for many, many years? I mean, what got this to kind of be the gold standard?
1: I think it was more, I don't know, a gold standard. I and mean, we'll kind of talk about some evolutions and talk about current environment today. But it was really more of a seminal work where there was really not that much, if anything, before it. So the fact that he was looking at it, and you kind of got to put this in context as well. So, you know, 92 interest rates were still quite high. You know, people could go ahead and leave money at the bank and get near double digit rates of return on their savings. People were really starting to live longer. So life expectancy was increasing quite rapidly. People still had pensions that were in retirement, although that was, you know, starting to change as some of those were going away or becoming frozen. And certainly that has accelerated over the last couple decades. But, you know, retirement planning was a lot easier if you go back a generation. And I'd speculate that's maybe some of the reason why decumulation or spending from an investment account wasn't really on the radar and in, in the you know investment and financial planning literature. But Bill really kind of started that in the early 90s. So today, when you don't have these traditional defined benefit pensions, at least nearly to the extent that they did a generation ago, and uh, you have interest rates that are, you know, near historic lows and people are living a lot longer, how much you can spend from your portfolio is so very important today compared to what it was a generation ago. Well,
0: as we're talking about this 4% rule, what are some of the major problems You know that we've kind of got this clear definition of this thing? What are some of the major problems? You talk about the evolution of it. Why has it gone through so many evolutions and changes and now maybe not as held in high esteem?
1: Well, I will go there in a second. Let me back up for a moment because one of the things that some people may be thinking about right now is 4%. What do you mean 4%? I mean, if on average I'm gonna earn more than that, why can I only spend four? So I'm sure there's probably a fair amount of people that are gonna listen to this and think that. So say if you're on average gonna get 6% per year, why can't you spend four and kind of leave two in the kitty and have it keep growing? Well, if you think about it simplistically, you know, returns are volatile. Call it a wiggle factor if you will. Interest rates have a relatively low wiggle factor. You know, they certainly move around, but it's not like you're going to get, you know, really wild swings in interest rates, say going from like plus 20 to minus 20% or something like that. However, that wiggle factor is much more severe when it comes to stocks. And, you know, you go back to 2008 and stocks were down by about forty percent, and and really nearly north of fifty percent from kind of a peak to trough decline, and you can have years even just a few years ago. You know, U.S. stocks were up north of thirty percent, and and small company stocks were north of forty percent. So, if you think of those in terms of you know a goalpost a runway, you know the runway is a lot wider for stocks than it is for bonds, and that's in the short term. But even if you go out over the longer term, you know, that runway for stocks will narrow. Um, I pulled up some data in front of me. I have kind of a best and worst 20-year return for the S&P 500. And this goes back all the way from 1926 when you know, really good you know, market data began to come about through the end of 2017. So, Walter, if I'll put you on the spot here. You have any guess what the best 20-year return was for the S&P 500?
0: The best 20 year return for the S&P 500. Um, That's a pretty long period of time. So I'd say it's not maybe as high as you would think. Let's go 10%, I'll just just guess 10.
1: So 10 is about the average if you go all the way back to 1926. In fact, with some of the favorable returns that we've had over the last several years for the US stock market, it's actually 11%. So S&P 500, 1926 through 2017, annual compounded average return is 11%. The best is north of 18%. Wow, 18, okay. one eight, quite high. And that's 1980 You know, going on forward. So conversely, I'll give you a chance of redemption here, Walter. What, what was the worst 20 <laughs> year return?
0: I feel good that I hit the average on the head, it sounds like, but uh, let's see. <laughs> right. that wasn't your question though,
1: unfortunately. The
0: worst 20, and we're going 20 year span again? We are. Well, I was eight off on my ten guess. So I'll go eight off on my low guess since I was right near the average. How about two percent?
1: You, wow! I'm quite impressed. Nice recovery. It's <laughs> actually one point eight nine. I'll round it up to two and say you're a winner.
0: Redemption. All right. I was really <laughs> yes. good at those Prices Right games growing up. Whenever I was sick, you know, and you'd stay home. The one thing about being sick and staying home from school is you got to watch The Price is Right. I don't know if I'm the only one that felt that way, but. I was always really good at the <laughs> prices right games. So, so I feel like I'd be a good contestant there.
1: <laughs> there you go. This, this proves so it. So <laughs> when you think about that runway, so the average is eleven, and this is over a 20-year time span. So we're not talking about say like, you know, minus 40% to positive 40%. You know, that runway is quite wide. But even over 20 years, we're going from just call it two to eighteen. So the runway from a one-year perspective historically is about, you know, if it's minus forty to plus forty. Again, I'm just kind of using some ballpark numbers here, but you know that's 80%. You take you know both sides of those and add it up. Over 20 years, that 80% narrows down to a 16% differential, but it's still quite a big differential, and we're talking over 20 years. So if I just do some kind of simple math in my head, if we're talking about a 16% difference over 10 years, 16 times 10 is 160% difference double that to get to 20 years. We're talking 320% difference in cumulative return and that ignores compounding. With compounding that's going to be quite more. So to loop this back into the 4% rule, what Bengen was doing was saying, "Hey, you know, returns are variable. You know, even if we can get an average return of say 6 or 8 or whatever it may be, we're not going to be able to spend that average because there's this risk that we get a negative sequence of returns at the outset of retirement. A lot of the researchers will call this return sequence risk. I've kind of adopted a simpler nomenclature called bad timing risk. And you don't know what it's <laughs> going to manifest. You know, you don't know if your retirement is going to cause the U.S. market seemingly to go into a big decline like it did in 2008. But you have to be able to plan for it and you don't want to have to retire and then unretire and go back to work. So, you know, this whole idea of what you can spend safely from the investment portfolio is incredibly critical. And that's why also on first glance, where if the returns on average are going to be six or eight, once you factor in the volatility or that wiggle factor that I talked about, the safe spending rate is something that's historically speaking going to be a lot less.
0: So the amount you withdraw obviously matters but also the timing of your withdrawals is a big part of this equation is a big factor that goes into that and I think that's really interesting you know to notice and to realize. So let me ask the obvious question. Kevin, if 4% isn't the right answer, what is?
1: Well, it's another one of these rules where I think the research that Bengen did was a good base case and you know there's some people if people have been listening to this whole series. This is kind of like the one that we did previously about you know, spend 80% of your pre-retirement income in retirement. It may match up for a small segment of the population. Certainly the more means that you have, the less likely it is to match up. And the same too goes here with the spending rate as well. So when you look at this and say, well, you know, hey, does it apply? Is it a good rule? What have you? When I think about the clients that we serve on a daily basis, you know, again, there's probably only about a handful or so that it really applies to. So if you have somebody that is retiring, you know, in their early 60s, say sixty years old, and maybe they don't have a pension, so they retire at sixty, they've done well, and now they go have to go and replace their paycheck. So, you know, they can't take their social security yet earliest, that's 62. And as we talked about in a prior episode, that may not necessarily be a good age to go ahead and take your benefits. But if you're 60, your portfolio has to do all the work if you don't have any pension, and if you don't have any Social Security or other retirement income coming in. So your distribution rate or your spending rate is going to be, you know, going to be way higher, more likely than not than 4%. And if you're going ahead and if you're doing a Social Security deferral strategy as well, which again, there's a lot of merits that goes into a strategy like that for many, many people. But the portfolio is going to have to do more work for an even longer period of time. It's not uncommon that we have distribution plans for our clients where they're spending you know, 10% of their portfolio in the early years of retirement. However, when they get into their 70s and say the maximum Social Security benefit kicks in, their spending rate may only be like 1% or 2%. I can think of... A couple handfuls of clients where literally their spending rate is going to go down to basically zero and they may actually be saving more money if they don't change their spending behaviors and increase them from what they were before so there's going to be things that change for everybody you know whether it's a social security deferral or whether you're just your expenses in general you know that's another thing again that 80 percent rule it doesn't really apply you know most people have some expenses that are going to be consistent at the beginning of retirement and will increase with inflation as long as they live other expenses when you look at actual retiree spending data go down over time so to go back without kind of hashing out the entirety of a prior podcast about the 80 percent rule but simplistically the 60s tend to be the go-go years the 70s tend to be the slow go years and the 80s tend to be no-go years and as you go through those different decades and those behavioral changes, your spending really does decrease in terms of what we call real spending or after inflation. Or said another way, if you just spent the same amount of money, say it was you know $70,000 that you were living on at age 60 and you just had $70,000 for the next couple of decades, because your spending on average is going to go ahead and decline and some of those categories are just going to fall off. Then that's $70,000, even though it's not keeping up with inflation, it's probably going to approximate the change that you're going to have in your spending behaviors given the go-go, slow-go, and no-go phase.
0: Well, it's always nice. We talk so much in percentages, Kevin, but it's nice when we can actually put dollar figures to some of these conversations as well. I'm just curious if you've got maybe an example or a story you can share with us about somebody – who you made a tangible dollar difference in the plan that you put together versus if they had done some sort of plan like the four percent rule kind of what their situation would have been you know had certain circumstances happened versus having a plan put in place that you know you and your team were able to design
1: yeah i can so if i just start with social security for example i've measured concretely for clients where hey, here's your current thinking. If you go ahead and defer, you know, say one of the spouse's social security benefits, usually the higher of the two. And uh, we go through and kind of stress test both plans at different spending rates. And in effect, we kind of want to get a similar result at the end of the plan. How much more spending can say a social security deferral strategy allow you to do on a similar basis. And I've measured where it's been as much as, say, like six or $7,000 a year for certain clients. And that's just Social Security. So when you get into the distribution plan, we haven't spoken about taxes yet. Whenever Bengen looked at this in the early 90s, the 4% rule corresponds to basically the money not being taxed. So if the money is coming out of an IRA and say your average effective tax rate is maybe 10% or so, so it's gonna be something less that you're gonna be able to spend on an after-tax basis. And if that money say is not in an IRA, but in say like a brokerage account or a trust account or a joint account with your spouse, There's going to be some tax drag on that because you're going to get a 1099 every January and that's going to have to show up on your tax return. So once you start getting into not only the distribution plan and matching that to spending, but overlaying that with some smart tax strategies, it's easy to see and run simulations where you can show somebody that, hey, you know, here's the way you're thinking about doing it or the way that most people do it, kind of these roles that you have. But if you do it this way, your spending is going to last maybe an extra three or four years. So you can kind of equate it to how much more can you spend per year on a similar sort of safe basis? You can translate it to how many more years would your money last? Or you can also translate it to, you know, kind of a quest value and say, How much more money are you likely to have when We like to say your plan ends which is a very pc way of saying you kind of move on or pass away so you know depending on what's important to the person we can kind of gauge that for anybody and start quantifying some of those benefits and the good thing is too banking really kind of started this in 92 there's been so many good distribution planning articles that have come out and particularly as interest rates have gotten a lot lower and as stock values have gotten a lot higher there's been a lot more attention you know being paid to this area so there's a lot of good work that's been out there peer-reviewed by a lot of smart people quantifying the benefits of these different distribution strategies and the good thing for us is you know we may not be original and kind of creating this work but we can certainly read it comprehend it explain it to clients in simple language and then incorporate it in their plan to make better and smarter decisions for them in their retirement.
0: It's another one of those retirement rules gone awry, the 4% rule where you withdraw 4% each year from your retirement plan. And it kind of says, hey, you're going to be all right if you do it that way. Plenty of holes poked into that theory today. Kevin, before we wrap up the conversation, anything else you want to highlight about the 4% rule that you think would be important to know?
1: You know, it's a starting point. People that are reading about it, it, gets you thinking about it, but it really is just a starting point. You know, there's a lot of value that a good advisor can add if they can go ahead and actually take a lot of this research, simplify it, give you the clarity and confidence to go ahead and make better decisions and show you those tangible benefits that it will make, whether that's retiring early, making your money last longer, leaving more to your kids or to the charities that you support, or, you know, Hey, be a little bit fun and a little bit selfish and spend more money while you're living, you know, see the benefits of having those experiences for yourself, for your family, maybe even giving some of the money to your kids while you're alive, rather than just waiting and giving them a big lump sum while you're gone. So all this stuff is interrelated. That should be becoming very, very clear if you're listening to this Retirement Rules Gone ride podcast series that we've been doing. But if you're a missing piece of it, it's kind of a domino effect as well. So you kind of need to look at everything if you're really going to get the most out of what you have.
0: I like the way that you describe that, and that's definitely a common thread between all our retirement rules gone awry. They probably should be renamed instead of retirement rules to possible starting points for the conversation, likely not to be where you end up.
1: Probably that's uh, that's uh, that's not as catchy as retirement rules. I'm it's open not. for suggestions here. I think I may have said <laughs> earlier that's my working title for this book that I'm writing. However, it's got to be catchy. I've been told so. Starting place probably not a good title. Retirement rules maybe. I'm not sure. But if anybody has a good suggestion, go ahead and reach out to us for that. Or you know, if you have questions about this in general, you know, we're happy to help there as well.
0: Well, if you have questions about your financial plan or about any of the retirement rules gone awry that we've talked about on the recent podcasts, you can give Kevin and the team a call at True Wealth Design. It's 855-TWD-PLAN. That's it, 855-TWD-PLAN. If you like the full number version, that's 855 7526 and always online at truewealthdesign.com. If you'd like to get in touch with the team through the website, you can click on Are We Right for You, the button right there when you go to the website, truewealthdesign.com, and you can schedule a 15 minute call with an experienced financial advisor on the True Wealth team to see if you would be a good fit and if you need some financial planning assistance. Truewealthdesign.com or give a call, 855 855- TWD plan. We're not quite done with the Retirement Rules Gone Awry series. We'll tackle another issue coming up on the next podcast. Don't forget to subscribe on Apple Podcasts, Google Podcasts, and everywhere else you can find podcasts and where you'd like to subscribe to them. Don't forget to look us up, Retire Smarter, so you don't miss an episode. Kevin, thanks for all the help, and we'll look forward to another conversation next time around. Sounds good, Walter. Thank you. For Kevin Krosky, I'm Walter Storholt. We'll talk to you next time on Retire Smarter.